Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode four of 321 No Kidding. Today, we have a special guest, one of my peers from the Center of Problem Gambling. I do want to warn you if hearing dollar amounts or money figures are a trigger or bother you, there are some specifics in this episode. So if you're not comfortable with that, I just wanted you to know up front. Aside from that, I'm very excited to have Brett join us. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a Brett month. This is the first of two Bretts that we're going to have in the month of December. So sit back and enjoy. All right. We're here with Mr. Brett Stone. Hi, Brett. Thank you for being on 321. No kidding. Hello, Bobby. You're a friend of mine from the center. I'm hoping that you'll share your story with my listeners because it's pretty interesting. And I think it does a good job of showing how gambling can impact somebody's life. So before we get into the heavy duty stuff, can you please share with the audience a little bit about you? You know, who are you? Where are you from? All that good stuff. Sure. Well, obviously my name is Brett and I currently live upstate New York and my background is highly professional. I started out uh, with my bachelor's in accounting and I've done work in public accounting and then I went into teaching and I have a doctorate and I taught accounting for many years and currently I'm a trainer for a large software firm. So I've always liked to teach. I've got two uh, older kids, 118 and 122. So the reason I always like to tell that as part of my story, especially when we're talking about the addiction and stuff, is because it has nothing to do with education. And that's one thing that always comes through. Uh, it doesn't matter about your background, doesn't matter about your education, color of your skin. So that's where I come from. A little bit about me. I don't know if, if we need any more, but. Well, me being the fan that I am, I think that you have a couple babies at home that you should mention too, in addition to the children. Oh, yeah, my babies. I have two beautiful puppies, a two-and-a-half-year-old yellow lab named Chesney, and I have one-and-a-half-year-old golden doodle named Lily, and they are they are definitely my babies. Very good. We can't leave them out. <laughs> okay, so if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about your gambling career to start with, and then we'll talk about when it ended, how it ended, and where we are yeah. today. Yeah, so for me, I always had a desire to play games and I guess gamble. When I, when I was younger, I always loved carnivals and playing the carnival games. I used to love poker and I played poker when I was in high school and in college. And literally I play, I remember playing with a few people in college and we would play for 24 hours and we would play for $10. It had nothing to do with money. I never felt out of control. It was the four or five of us and it was a lot of fun. And then, um, Around age 30, I just started to try to get involved in the stock market, and I got involved right around uh, the time that the dot-com bust was happening. So not only was I getting involved in a very volatile time, but it was very easy to lose money as opposed to all of the easy money. So like a lot of people, I started out and I lost my first $25,000 that was very aggressive in what I was doing. I didn't have $25,000 to lose. thought it was all the money in the world. I remember uh, driving to work one day, totally in tears, crying. How am I going to tell my wife? And from there, that's when I think my, my addiction started to kick in. And I didn't know it then. I didn't know I had an addiction. But I started to try to make up for that. 
and trying to make up for that $25,000 over the next 20 years brought me to the point where I was suicidal and hundreds of thousands of dollars gone. A lot of that's still in debt, but a lot of it just disappeared, any of my retirement, any of my savings and all of that, plus a lot more. So it was 20 years of a constant spiral. Started out, which I thought it was about the money, and turns out it had nothing to do with the money, but of course money is the the ramifications of, of being involved in their addiction. So if it wasn't about the money, what was it about? Well, I came to learn, I started out with that $25,000 and I wanted to make it back. So over the next three, four, five years, I kept taking out credit cards and cash advances and I, I would do it secretly, lying to my wife and she would catch me and I would cry and apologize and, and beg for forgiveness. Then I would do it again. Then I would do it again. Eventually, she said to me that, hey, um, you're going to get some help because you're sick. And I said, I'm not sick. I'm just trying to make up, you know, trying to make money for my family. And she says, you're either going to go see somebody or we're done. So I went to see a specialist. He's a psychologist, counselor, specializes in gambling. And the first day he saw me, he said he started smiling at me when I was telling my story because I was talking about the stock market and how I really thought I could make it back. And it was all intellectual. And he just smiled and he says, Brett, you're a gambling addict and you need to face that or you're going to continue to gamble. And I didn't believe him. I thought, well, no, I'm just not a good investor at the moment. I'm going to figure out how to do this. I played poker. I got into the stock market and it just progressed and progressed and progressed. And then what happens with most addict, you know, people in addiction, particularly gambling, is the guilt overcomes you. So for me, I always describe it as starting at age 30 and I first $25,000, I had this guilt and it started in my feet and it just built up and, and you get very good at having your two worlds, the one world where you're living in normal and people don't know anything about what's going out and gone inside of you and you're gambling or anything like that, but inside you're dying. I was a professor of accounting and I remember that I would put my phone up on the lectern and as I was lecturing, talking about accounting, I'd pass by my phone and watch the ticker as my stocks were going up or down or what have you. They were down a lot. I'd get that feeling in my gut that I just wanted to die, but yet I can still keep my smile and all of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't until that guilt built up where I say it just built up over my, over basically in my head that I just, the guilt was so much, I just wanted to kill myself. And at the, at the very end, I had uh, my brother, my older brother, who finally one day I was texting him talking about, you know, I, uh, that I've had it, you know, take care of my kids and all this stuff. I don't know if I could have ever gone through with it, but I definitely was very depressed. I fought, dep I fought depression all the way uh, up and down all those 20 years besides, but I realized that the gambling fueled that. But long story short, he called the police and they ended up putting me into a hospital because it was their requirement since they felt I was a danger. I got admitted and I spent a week in that hospital in the psych ward and I came out of that psych ward a different individual. I admitted that I had a problem and I've, I haven't looked back. That was March 11th of 2016 was my last bet, three and three quarter years since I've made that last bet. But for me, that was my rock bottom. I almost lost everything. And it had nothing to do with the money. I almost lost my life. I almost lost my daughter, my son, my jobs, and, and all of that. So that's why it's much more about the gambling. It's much more about the money. It's about the family. It's about the friends. It's about your own life. Well, congratulations on three and three quarter years. That's very exciting. Thank you. 
it's amazing, but thank you. I met you through the center. Talk about coming out of the hospital. How did you find the center? I just did a Google search and I found this center for problem gambling. And it was actually a few weeks before I went into the hospital. And coincidentally, I got to the point where I was so depressed. I went to see a psychologist and that psychologist told me I was in tears in her office. I had just gambled literally seconds before I walked in her office. While I was crying, I gambled away a few thousand dollars in the stock market. So she told me, you know, you definitely have a problem. You are an addict. But this is how bad the situation is in the world with how people can treat this addiction. She saw me in tears. She saw the sadness in me. She knew that I wasn't in a good place, but she agreed. You know, she said, you are definitely, you know, have a problem. She let me leave that office and she says, so what we can do is we're both going to research and figure out, you know, what's around, what's the best place for you to go. And then next week we'll talk about it. Well, after I left that office, it's between the day I left that office, I knew the center was available. I just went ahead and made an appointment because I was, I realized that, you know, once I calmed down, I was like, I was in tears and she just told me to go and, you know, we'll, we'll work it out because she had no concept of the depths of what a gambling addiction can do to somebody. Obviously didn't sense the suicidal tendency. So I actually made an appointment for the center. But before that appointment happened, a few of those days after the psychologist, I just, I, I just got more and more depressed and that's when I ended up in the hospital. So when I came out, in order, one of the requirements, once they, when they release you, they don't wanna just release you. You have to have a plan set up so they actually called and, and made my appointment again for the center. And that's what I had to agree to do when I got out. So at that point, I was more than happy to go, but it was because of the hospital that, uh, that I had to go for the first time. So a trained psychologist, so a professional, didn't mm. know what to do with you because do you think it was because she didn't understand gambling addiction or what do you think caused that? It's not as bad as she didn't have the answer, but she didn't have an appreciation for what my problem was. Like I kind of look back on it and I feel like most people, she used the term, well, you're a gambling addict, more like you need to get your act together. You know, you need to stop doing the silly stuff. You're losing money and your family needs you as opposed to, you know what, Brett, your gambling addiction is no different than any other addiction. It's in your brain. It's a brain disorder. You don't have control and all of the other things that people will talk about with opioids, uh, opioids and other drugs and things like that. And that's what we've learned at the center. You know, that was one of the things for me, the, like I said, I, you know, I have a depression in my family, so I was prone to being with uh, having depression, but the gambling fed that depression. And then I gambled more and then I got more depressed and all of that. And the one thing that killed me was, here I am, again, CPA, accounting professor, had you know, worked for some prestigious firms, and yet I couldn't control this. I couldn't make decisions that would you know, stop this thing. But when I learned that gambling was absolutely a brain disorder, I didn't forgive myself and say, oh, good, you know, all of those hundreds of thousands of dollars, my, my marriage and all that stuff. But what it allowed me to do is take responsibility for what I did but not beat myself up. And I tell people, you know, if I had cancer of the brain, 
and it made me do things that I wouldn't be proud of doing, I wouldn't be guilty of that. No, people would not want me to feel guilty. So the fact that my, my brain is diseased, I literally had no control, but it wasn't until I appreciated that. So this counselor, this psychologist, she literally had no idea. She just doesn't, didn't see it as a addiction and everything that comes with that. That's part of the mission behind this podcast is I think that that's a global problem. It's pretty scary. I, I recently went to a recovery conference where it was very focused on substance abuse. And I think that you were involved in a presentation. You guys spoke about physical symptoms, right? So if you showed up for work with a buzz on or drugs in your system, people could tell. And you shared with the audience, if you lost a ton of money that morning, it's not evident to anybody else. No. So it, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And like I said, when I was in the classroom, I literally could fool everybody and my body was okay with it for 20 years. It got increasingly worse, but eventually I kept it inside and it bubbled over. And it was only until that, it wasn't until that point when it could be seen on my face and my actions. Other than that, I mean, I remember going on vacations. One of the stories I tell is my daughter, you know, she was born, you know, she's not even four or five hours old. And I'm thinking about investing in the stock market. And I step out of the room and think about the stock market. And I look back on that and I'm just like, that is the power of the addiction. Here's my newborn daughter and I can't focus 100% and it's crazy. That is crazy. So can you tell me what's happened in the last three and three quarter years? What, what does your journey look like? Well, for me, once I got out of the hospital, I had this renewed release, uh, lease on life. And I just simply said, I'm an addict. I can never, ever gamble again the way normal people gamble. So I just need to not gamble. And I started, I went to, uh, at the center, the beauty of the center versus something like a GA meeting, they both are awesome and they both offer resources for, you know, people that, that need help. But the center offers one-on-one -on -one counseling from trained counselors, group counseling that is not the same as a group such as in a, in a, in a GA or AA meeting. It's just run a little bit differently. So for me, going to meetings three times a week. I was meeting with my counselor twice a week. And really, I started to look at me. So I took into account that a lot of what I did was because of the disease. But there's a rationale. There's something that helps that disease come out. It's always there. But it's almost like you give it permission based on the way you behave and the way you look at life and things like that. So the last three and a half years, I looked inside i made some changes to how I approach life. For one thing, I live life and I, and I literally wake up in the morning and feel blessed that I woke up in the morning and anything else is a benefit to that. So, so that whole saying of, you know, you don't set, sweat the small stuff and all of that, I live like that. I don't worry about the past. I, I certainly don't regret and I don't worry about the past and I can't worry about the future because it hasn't happened yet. So I started living my life doing the right thing and part of what happened near the end of my line there before I went to the hospital was the relationship with my daughter went, was going way downhill. And it's because I didn't have the ability to focus and everything made me feel guilty and depressed and all of that. So when I came out of the hospital at that point, my daughter wanted nothing to do with me. 
and I just went to meetings, kept going to counseling, and I did the same. I did just what I could do to control the present every day. And over the last three and three quarter years, the fruits of that have happened. I had my daughter come back in my life after six months and our relationship you know, got better and better. I ended up with a new job that I wasn't expecting that now I'm in a position, my job is the best. I'm, I'm literally happier than I've ever been. I think the ability to just see things that you couldn't see when you're in the, you know, the active addiction. I always liken to, I always liken it to uh, having a pair of glasses on. You're looking at a wall and it's green. It's really green, but with your glasses, it looks blue. And it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. You cannot imagine that wall being anything else but blue, right? But eventually those glasses come off over that period. So for me, they did. And I started seeing things for what they were. I think about four months after I started, one of the things that, that really made me realize that I could do this at my home, every spring and every fall, I'd bring stuff out for the spring, I'd put stuff back in for the fall. And there was one uh, spring, this had to be the fourth or fifth time that I did this, you know, before I went into the hospital and after. And I was taking out this thing, there's just a rock, uh, you know, something we put in the garden. And I did it four or five times already. And as I was walking, and this is after being gamble free, I looked at the rock and the rock had the serenity prayer on it, what we say before and after every meeting. And I literally sat down and just had chills because that's the power. In my addiction, I couldn't even see that that prayer was on that rock. I didn't notice it or I couldn't see it. And then when gambling was no longer part of my life, you start seeing something like that. And, and it just, that's just, just a, a kind of a glimpse into things of how, how they've changed. But the reality is I focus on every day. I've made my relationships stronger. And just being honest, you know, my, my ex-wife, she's the one I hurt, you know, besides my, my daughter, she's the one I hurt the most because I kept lying to her. And I knew her for 20 years. We, we got engaged, right, you know, after college and we knew each other for 20 years. We were married for 18. And just this past couple of months, we have become such a good couple. We were always focused on our kids, but there was always anger uh, from her perspective. And one of the stories I told, this happened about, so it was three and three quarters. This probably happened, this happened last year. And this was a big milestone. When you're in recovery and you're doing the right thing and you're not feeling guilty and you're not gambling, you have the ability to respond to things from, a, from your heart or from your head, but without guilt. And there was one day last year that I was, I was helping my ex out. I was doing something in her house, helping her with a door lock or something. And she started talking about my daughter and some issues we had. And I was like, it'll be okay. You know, we'll, we'll deal with it and whatever. And she looked at me and she says, how the F are you so damn positive? And she said, you know what? I'm really almost sick and tired of it because you, what you did to my life and now you're out there all happy and stuff. Before I stopped gambling, I would have won when gambling and probably been more suicidal. That guilt of what I did to this woman who I've known half my life. And instead, I turned to her and I said, you know, you have absolutely every right to be angry and to be hurt. I can't change the past. You know, I tell you, you know, that it was due to an addiction, but that doesn't relieve my responsibility. But understand that since I've made the decision to acknowledge my addiction and be in recovery, 
I've done everything I can that I can control. And I'm going to continue to do that. But by not responding in a negative way with, with a reaction and, and guilt and all of that stuff, that was actually her healing moment. And she told me that was all she needed. And she didn't even know it. But being able to get that off her chest and know that I actually felt it, that I actually understood it, and I didn't try to blame it on something else, it just changed her. And, and she is, to me, she's happier than she's ever been now. And I just saw her the other day. But that's what the journey of recovery has done for me. Um, and it's just, you, you know, we always tell me you can't make this stuff up. And it's not easy. You have to do the work. But it's all about just not gambling. That's pretty spectacular results. I actually feel like I remember you talking about it within the last year about what a great relationship you and your ex-wife have. I want to repeat back kind of what I heard in your story as addiction impacts so many people. Would you say that this is true? Because this is what I think I heard is when you're on the path to recovery, it isn't about trying to please your daughter or please your ex-wife or do things to show them. It sounded more like your process was more internal and that when you took care of yourself, you got the right job, you got the right girl that we haven't even talked about yet. You know, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Is that what I'm hearing? That like when you take care of yourself, these other things fall into place? Yeah. Oh, ab absolutely. And the whole idea of we don't control other people's reactions. So whenever somebody said to me, you know, we're talking in group or what have you, and they said, so have you spoken to so-and-so and, you know, you're doing so well. So how is so-and-so doing? I said, you know, it's very possible that all of this great changes in me take place and all of these great things are happening. And yet people that I've heard never get over. It, right. So we don't do things for other people. We just do what the, what the right thing is to do for ourselves. And yet people see that. So it's, it's very possible in my situation that my ex-wife just never was able to forgive me. Right. But I had no control over that. So I didn't, I didn't get better because, you know, my daughter wasn't talking to me. I didn't get better because my ex-wife, you know, was hurt. I got better because if I couldn't live, if I couldn't just be happy, nobody would want to be around. me. So yeah, we do stuff and I do stuff for me. And, and it's, it's selfish, but it's not, you know, when, when I remember I had an ex-girlfriend, I had a girlfriend that I was with at the time I went through all of this and we ended up breaking up and it was tough because we were together a few years after I was in recovery. And the issue we had there was she felt I was being selfish because I kept doing things for me after I, you know, when I started my recovery and I said to her, I said, but don't you understand that I'm not anything to you. I'm not here for you, both physically, but more importantly, mentally, if I'm out there in my addiction, right? So I have to do what I need to do for me because first and foremost, if I don't and I gamble again, I'm going to be suicidal and I have a very high possibility of killing myself. So that's first, that's it. But besides the, you know, the, the dramatic part of it, it's simply, I, I have to be able to be me because if I can do for me, then other people can feed off of that. So my daughter has definitely fed off it. My, my son, other friends, and absolutely my ex. So absolutely, we do for ourselves, and that affects other people.
So an opinion question, please. Part, part of the reason, again, for the podcast is we're very spoiled, right? We have the center, we have GA meetings seven days a week here, but around the country, that isn't so actually around the world. It's getting better. There's things like Zoom and, and phone lines and everything. But if there was a gambler, some rural area, just kind of listening to the things that we're talking about, what would you say to someone who's in their head thinking that maybe they're a gambler or they just left the casino and lost X amount of dollars and, and they have that ride home? If you could be that voice in their head, what would you say to that person driving home broke and having that despair yeah wow it brings back some some memories for sure and that's and that's part of it i would i would tell that person you have to understand that the addiction has hold of your brain and just like that analogy i used with the glasses it works for your ears as well that i i kind of make a joke i tell people it's like the old charlie brown the peanuts uh, teacher in the classroom when people are telling you things that makes sense and, and, and they're, they're against what the addiction wants you to do. You hear the wah, 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 right? You don't hear it. So somehow you have to reach deep inside and you need to find the faith to go and find other people that can understand you. Because the reason GA works, the reason our center works, the reason why group talking and speaking and, and sharing works is because the disease wants to separate us from everybody that cares about us, right? And because it knows if people start feeding you that, hey, you know what? It's not you. You're a good person. That's, it's just your disease. You may not want to kill yourself. You may not want to gamble, right? So I would tell that person you need to find an outlet and have faith that no matter what you hear, it's not going to resonate the same way until later after you're away from the bet for a while. And that faith, oh man, it is so hard because like I said, I remember when I, when that, when that uh, counselor told me when I was 30 something and I didn't listen to him, it took me 20 years. And I, and I had people telling me all along, you know, you might have a problem or, you know, why are you so depressed? But I wasn't ready to listen. The idea also, not only hearing what other people say, it's this idea of being connected. It's not that you are disappointing people. So we always talk about in our group that there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you've ever done, nothing you could ever do that will surprise the group because we know what the, what the level of, of what an addiction can do. And we not only appreciate it and understand it, but in a group of 10 people, no matter what you say you've done, there's probably one person that has done it as well, right? So the ability to, to look at somebody and say, I feel like an idiot. You know, I told myself I'm going to go into the casino and I'm only going to spend $200 and I end up $3,000 in the hole. How does that happen? I, I'm an idiot. You know, I must be the stupidest person in the world. And 10 people in the room raise their hand and go, done that, been there 20 times, you know? So the ability to know that you're not alone is huge to feeling like, okay, maybe there's a way. And that ability to get connected so that if you have an urge, you realize, you know what, if I gamble, if I can't do this, I let people that care about me down. And it's not about guilt. It's not about shame if you let them down. It's, it's literally an extra piece of a wall. You know, I, I always talk about uh, you build a wall to help you uh, avoid making the bet. 
There's no guarantee. We face this every single day. Am I going to make a bet? Am I not going to make a bet? But you build a wall because if it's easy to get over, it's easier to make that bet. And there's a big chunk of the wall that I believe is if I have other people in my life that care about me, it's going to make it harder for me to want to jump over that wall. And lastly, the thing about don't despair, get to a group, get to people who know what they're talking about is because once you let people in, the sharing by itself is healing, but people get to know you. You know, I've known you and a a bunch of people from the center for years. If we went out and we were just, you know, hanging out and we were having a meal or something like that, if I was gambling, other people may not know it, but you guys would know it. It would be totally evident in how I talk and how I react where other people would have no idea. So you have the ability to realize you're not alone. That feeling alone is going to be helpful. And you just... You don't want to do it alone, but more importantly, you don't have to. The disease is convincing you you're the only one who's ever been doing this. Your life is crap, so you might as well keep gambling. But the people who have been through it and that are addicts, we know differently. And that's what it is. It just takes time, though. You said something about a wall. Is there any other tools that you'd like to share from your toolbox on what that wall looks like? Any other tricks that help make it higher? Yeah. And and so we'll start off with the premise where I was alluding to there, where you have to have a healthy respect for the addiction. Again, doesn't matter, male, female, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your background is, whether you're wealthy, whether you're not, whether you're smart, whether you have degrees or not, all of that kind of stuff. You have to have a healthy appreciation and a fear of the disease. So it's not about, you know, I can do this and I'll never gamble again. It's, I have to understand that every day there's a possibility that I will gamble again, right? So you do everything you can to, to make it harder because we've learned that with our urges, if we get the feeling that we're going to have to gamble, a lot of times we have time that that feeling comes from things that have been happening for many days, many weeks, actually. We talk about that we relapse before we actually relapse. So If you build the wall so that you can put time between you and the urges and the actual ability to bet, it's going to help. So the number one thing is, as a gambler, is not have control of your money. And that's not easy to do, especially for a man. We, we, in our male groups, our men-only groups, we always talk about how, you know, we're men. You know, we have to have control. And I always tell people the story of, the number one tool, well, first of all, I went to meetings as much as I could. I had my counseling. That's part of my wall for sure. And then I would say, I can't gamble if I can't get to my money. So what I did is turn to my girlfriend and I said, you know, I, I should turn over all of my bank cards and everything to you. I couldn't do it. I probably should have, but I talked to my counselor. I didn't make the decision on my own. I talked to the counselor and I said, listen, I'm a CPA. I'm an accounting professor. I I just find it difficult, but I know I need to do something. So she agreed with me and I opened up an account that had uh, electronic alerts. So my girlfriend would get text alerts if a penny went in or out of my account. Now, could I still have access to the money? Absolutely. But what would be the fun of that from the addiction standpoint? Knowing that you're lying and getting away with it is part of the rush that your disease loves, right? 
So that was a big piece of my wall because I knew, all right, I could do it, but I got to figure out a way where she wouldn't find out, which was much more difficult. The other things we do is, like I said, you, you open yourself up to people because if I gamble, it's harder for me to get over that wall if I know I'm going to disappoint people. It took me a little bit, but the other thing I did is I banned myself. In New York State, you can fill out one application and you can ban yourself from all forms of gambling in the state for either you know a year or five years or for a lifetime. I did it for a lifetime. And I then did it to the closest casinos to me, the Foxwoods and, and whatnot. But doing that, you know, whenever you talk to somebody who's fresh, trying to get into recovery or still gambling, they always say, what is that going to do? If I want to go, I can go. Totally true. But I always tell people, think about it. You're banned from the casino. If you get caught, you can go to jail. Do you think that you get the urge to gamble, you're going to instantly go? You're certainly going to have a pause and maybe a big pause. And that'll give you an opportunity to cool down in a sense from the urges. So you, you do those things. So for me, the wall is built up of your meetings. It's built up of counseling. Uh, somehow, if you can't give up your money, have somebody that has access to it, such as ask your mom, ask your girlfriend, ask your friend, hey, can I ask you a favor? Can you please look at my bank account on a weekly basis, right? Because if, they, if somebody, if you're accountable, it makes it tougher to gamble. We can still gamble if you're accountable. So those are a number of things that I use uh, to build my wall. Thank you. Thanks for explaining the band and signing off as well. It's important. I didn't know for many years that that was even possible. So another point I'd like to drive home in the, in the conversation is for me, part of my recovery has been finding activities that are better to do than gambling, right? That are healthier, whether it's reading a book, whatever. My, my belief, and I could be wrong, I could be, is that the more positive things we do and take care of ourselves and self-care, the easier our recovery is going to be because we're investing in ourselves, to your point about being selfish earlier. So my question is, and I know you travel a lot and, and you have a full plate, but what kind of items do you do to take care of yourself or what kind of activities do you get fun out of that, that you know you're taking care of yourself? So early on, one of the easiest things to try to do, although it's always a struggle for people, is to go to the gym. And what I realized was, especially when you're, when you're trying to avoid something, you can always make up reasons why, right? It's absolutely from a health perspective, you should go to the gym, you should do aerobic exercises, maybe be involved in classes, and you should also do some weightlifting. Well, I didn't want to get on the machines. I didn't want to do that. So although it's helpful and healthy to do that, I told myself, well, if you can't do that, if you, if you don't do that, is there anything else you want to do at the gym? I was like, you know, I've always tried to, I always wanted to do some more weightlifting. So for me, I decided not to psych myself out. And going to the gym, I would go every day. It was a little bit more convenient for me because of where the gym was, but I went every day. And that gave me a few months of focus because I saw results after a while. I wanted more results. That became my obsession. You know, I wanted to do that. I started paying more attention simply to relationships. You may, you'd be amazed at how much time you can spend simply by being involved with other people's lives, right? I don't like talking on the phone but I text a lot. So I found myself hours a day where I would have otherwise be thinking about gambling 
or talking about gambling is I was texting other people just talking about what's going on. And if I had nothing to say, I, in my gambling, I could care less about other people's lives, right? All I cared about was the gambling. So now I would ask people a question, how's it going, what are you doing? And I would listen, whether it be through text or phone or whatever, that took up hours per day, so that was helpful. Um, I decided to spend more time with my puppy, um, so I would end up spending more time, you know, uh, I had a dog before, uh, the two I have now, Chesney and Lily, and that, I said, you know what? All this animal wants to do is to give me love. So I could spend an hour going out in the fields and we would take a long walk and, and what have you. So I just found things to take up time. And then of course, I, I like watching movies. So when I was in my gambling addiction, if I was watching a movie, I felt bored because I wanted to be thinking about the stock market or poker or something like that. So I just watched more movies. And the, the reality is you don't have, have to have a lifelong solution. I found a way to get through the first month by being busy with stuff that I hadn't been able to do. That led into two and three and four months and then five and six and seven months. And now, you know, the job that I've had that I've had you know, since the beginning of the year, I travel a lot, like you said, and it keeps me busy. But here's the other thing. Once you stop gambling and you get to the point where you realize that you're not the problem and you don't hate yourself, I can actually just walk and do nothing. I can sit in my hotel room over the weekend. Sure, there's days you know, that are worse than others. I get bored. But I'm not antsy to fill the void because my body isn't saying, oh, you need to go gamble. You need to go gamble. And I'm around. There's casinos everywhere now. Right? I can go play poker everywhere. So, I, so that's the stuff I've done. I know I've heard other people that they just figured out something that it can do otherwise. We had one person, a good friend in the center that for many, 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 many months, I think years, right? She would say, there is nothing <laughs> for excitement like gambling, nothing. And we would kid around with her. It was like, come on, there's got to be something. Go to a movie, go to the gym, whatever. And she says, no. And then eventually it came out that she had such a love for animals. And somebody said, well, why don't you watch other people's animals. There's a whole new world out there with people on rover.com and whatever. And now you can't get her, you know, for, for a lunch. She's busier than anybody I know, right? Um, but she was convinced that nothing would excite her, nothing would give her. And we realized that I don't need to find that same level of excitement because you know what? That level of dopamine, which you get that rush that you get from a, from a gambling win, you may not find that again but you don't have to, you know? What would you say to someone who had clean time, whatever that looked like, two weeks, two months, two years, what would you say to that person if they went out and placed a bet? Um, first of all, I'd say, well, you know, I'm sorry that to hear that, but it's not unheard of. It happens a lot. And the number one thing is don't look at it as I failed, that it was, wasn't worth it. Because the reality is, look at all that you would have learned over that time period. So you just have to find a way to get back to a group. And we've seen people that have relapsed and, and you know, after different amounts of time. And they still feel, no matter how much we say to them, there is no judgment with us. It's a very difficult thing to do. So I would say to them, force yourself to go to a meeting because nobody in that room 
is going to tell you something just to make you feel better. When they tell you, don't worry about it, we understand, we understand, and we don't think you should worry about it, right? So I tell people that, and then realize it's not all of a loss. Think about the time you spent learning about yourself. Think about if you spent six months or three weeks or two years away from the bet, I bet you've touched a lot of lives and you've done a lot more positive than you did when you were gambling. That doesn't go away just because you went back out and you gambled again. And then the last thing, just a little bit more serious, is the reality is, is that when we go back out after we've gambled, and I'm very thankful, I'm grateful, I've worked hard for it, but I have not relapsed. So I'm not speaking from experience, I'm speaking from what I've learned from other people. And we know that it tends to get a lot worse. That if you haven't gambled for two years, that day you go out and gamble, it's as if you never stopped. From a perspective of the disease, it goes from zero to 60 instantly. So if you were in trouble two years ago, and that may have taken you 20 years to get to that level, but if you were in trouble two years ago, the day you go out, you're in that much trouble again instantly. So you have to be extra diligent to understand that there's much more danger there than you might even perceive. But number one thing is, you're not alone. Plenty of people have done it because it's not a personal failure. It's not a character flaw. It's not, I wish I had the willpower. I should be stronger. It has nothing to do with that. You have a disease that something happened in your life where it opened up a door that allowed it to take hold again. Now, could you have gone to more meetings? Could you have done something to keep the money out of your pocket? Could you have you know, banned yourself? Sure but use it as a learning experience and simply start again and say, this is day one. What can I do that worked over the last period of time? And what can I do that I didn't do to give me that extra chance that I can go longer this time, but just don't feel guilty about it. Thank you. That was a lot to take in, but you reminded me when you spoke about the progression, when we were in treatment, we saw some video and it was probably made in the seventies, but this was the best visual for me to understand progression. When you go back out, where do you pick up? And they showed us, it was a tiger and they showed when you were in your addiction, the tiger was growing, 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 you know, the progression mm -hmm. going from a buck to a thousand dollars, whatever. And then when you're in recovery, the tiger goes to sleep. So if you picture this, it's as mm -hmm. grown as it is, but it goes to sleep and you see it in your belly. So then when you wake the addiction back up, the tiger goes back on its growing path. Two and a half years, and that visual just sticks with me so clear. So that's why yeah, I wanted that's to. Visual. It's so, always there. It's always there. It, it is. And as someone who went back out there, it absolutely was just as bad when I started again as when I ended in the first place. I just had lost some of my fear, which mm -hmm. I learned to your point, learning the lesson from going back out. If you haven't placed a bet in three and three quarters years and you're traveling for work and stuff. You don't have to go to meetings anymore, right? Are you cured yet? Uh, nope. <laughs> We're, we are never cured. And that's, and that's the interesting part. You know, when I do go to a meeting and I talk to people, I, I do. I have a very positive outlook on life. I love that people see that in me, right? And it's helped people that I've touched, which is awesome. But even when I say, when people say, well, why, you know, do you think you're going to gamble again? I instantly, say, I instantly say it like this. I have no expectation. I can't even imagine placing a bet ever again in my life. But 
I have enough respect for this disease to know that it can happen any day. So when I travel, I keep in touch with, with other gamblers through our, our WhatsApp connection, which we can talk about. And there are meetings everywhere. I have been, this is the, the last six weeks has been a little bit unusual, but when I come back, when, I, when I'm in town, I always try to get back to a, to a meeting. And, you know, people look around and they say, geez, you're an almost four years clean and I'm three days clean. You know, you're not like me, like you're totally different. And I try to tell them, no, we are exactly the same because this morning I had to make a conscious decision to stay in recovery and not gamble. So you're never cured, but you can manage your recovery. You can manage your disease and recovery and it gets easier. So earlier on, managing that recovery is a little bit more difficult because your urges are a little bit stronger. But over time, as life plays out, if you can stay in recovery, I find that um, it's easier to manage, but I absolutely will never, ever say that I'm cured and not go to meetings. And actually, you know, we talk about one of the reasons we're doing this is because whatever I can share, if that gives somebody an inspiration that, hey, they can do it too, then that's part of my give back as well, because I wouldn't be here today. I absolutely wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the family and friends and the people that helped me at the center, you know, over this time period. So I want to be there to help other people and they need to hear it. They need to see, oh yeah, well, you're three and a half, you're three and three quarters a year clean. And I'll say, oh yeah, well, three and three quarters years ago, I was in a psych ward and I was this close to losing my life because of my gambling. So yes, I'm in recovery, but I'm just like you. It is one thing that I appreciate in this area is you walk into a GA meeting and there's people with 10, 20, 30 years time. And at the center, you know, we get guest appearances frequently from people with four plus years, eight plus years. So it's good to see that it works and that they want to still be connected and that they're giving back because in my mind, especially when I came back to New York, they were like, the leaders are the good examples, the best resources. So we are lucky. We're lucky for people who have three and three quarters time coming into the rooms yeah. as well. And, and I'll, I'll share one thing, but I do still have time. Yeah. Um, I'll share one thing that, that this is exactly where your question was heading to help people understand that you always have to be diligent is I recently spoke with somebody that was one of my inspirations, one of my people I looked up to from the center when I first came there, somebody who's been fighting addiction for many, many years, different addictions. The person did really, really well, was always, you know, at meetings and doing all of that stuff. And then recently told me they relapsed less than a couple of weeks ago. And I said, wow, you know, that's tough, but here's the most disappointing thing. And it's, again, I'm not, it, the person has been disappointed me. It's disappointing that the disease has taken hold more than I could have, I would have liked to, to see. And he said to me, he told me that he relapsed. And I said, well, that's too bad. And his response first was, well, at least I didn't lose. So his disease is focusing in on the money he won, even though he relapsed. So that was a, a warning to me, a red flag. And then I said, have you been to a meeting since? And he says, no, I haven't had time. Right. So this is just, it's, it, it, gave me shivers because it's a perfect example 
of no matter how long you've been in recovery, no how, how long you've been fighting this, if you let your guard down, you open the door. And this person always had the right thing to say, always said, you know, the, the things you need to understand about recovery. And now that the disease has taken hold, he doesn't even understand that what he's saying is so opposite of what he used to, what he truly believes. And, you know, I said to him, and this, and you asked me before about what happens if somebody relapses. I don't judge him. I'm not a, you know, I don't want him to feel guilty. I need to, he needs to understand hopefully that it is the disease that's taken hold. So I said to him, I said, well, you know, I'm sorry that you relapsed, but I'm totally happy that you're okay today. You know, that you seem okay and that you're going to try to you know, get back on the horse and type of thing. But I said, for what it's worth, I'm, not, I'm never going to lecture to you, but what you're, how you're speaking and what you're saying is nowhere near the person that I knew in recovery. So just take that for what it's worth. So it's not making someone feel bad. It's not uh, telling them they did something wrong. It's, listen, the beast has you. Um, and let's see if we can get you to get on the right path so you can see that yourself. But I totally get that he doesn't see it. But it's just a reminder of staying diligent. It's crazy, too. Like, I think we're very fortunate to have the community we do. And you mentioned earlier that if we were back out, chances are that, you know, our community would pick up on that, especially before us. So sometimes it's good to hold up the mirror. And mm-hmm. I think- I'm not a believer in lecturing either, as hard as it is <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. So um, you did allude to WhatsApp. And I, again, I know that the center is kind of special to our region, but what is WhatsApp and what are you talking about? Like what kind of tool is that? Yeah, so, so WhatsApp is a messaging app. It's been around for a long time. It's got a ton of users, but it's just a way of, messaging or texting you can set up uh groups uh that are private you know you can only let certain people be part of it but it's a texting app uh but you can share images and things like that too the beauty of that is some time ago and it's been years now somebody said you know these meetings are great um we meet two three times a week but what about two in the morning when i have an urge what about if I'm traveling now, I know there's meetings all over the country, but you know, we think of the people we're most comfortable with, right? So we created a group on the WhatsApp app. I actually named it the Center for Problem Gambling Family because we think of each other as family. And once people come to meetings, we suggest that they become part of the, the group. And every morning, uh, every day, there are messages from different people. There's a handful of people Uh, Every morning, we'll say good morning to start your day. Yourself and others have shared from inspirational thoughts to stories to sending parts of the readings from the big book and and, and all of that. We've had people that have been able to say, hey, guys, I'm having a really tough day today. I'm not sure sure what to do. And people respond. It's a virtual group that is available literally 24 hours a day. We have one member who says he's awake any time of day, you know, any time of day or night, an older uh, group member. And he says, if you need something, you can call me. And the power of that is, and we've had a lot of people that say it, is that even though they are not comfortable, they're not there where they want to share a lot on that thread, 
just by having a connection, just by getting a, an alert that there's a message and somebody's, you know, either something about gambling or just something about, hey, you know, did I see the game the other night? They feel connected. And remember that the disease wants you to feel disconnected because the more disconnected we feel, the easier it is for us to want to gamble because we think that's our friend. We think that, that that's our comfort. So it's been wonderful. And for me, I was much more active in terms of posting long things about stories and things like that. And it's amazing over the years where other people that have gotten a year, two years and more clean, they now share those things, right? So if I'm busy, you know, I don't have to feel I need to respond all the time, but I'm connected every day. And even for me, I had, this was about a couple of years ago. So when I was coming towards the end of my relationship with my girlfriend, I was on a cruise and I was in the middle of the Caribbean and we had a big fight and I was up on one of the decks and there's a casino on the cruise and I was good about, didn't bother me. I would always walk around, you know, different, different decks and all of that. And I, for the first time in years, I had a feeling that I just wanted to say F it and go gamble. I don't know if I actually could have because I knew what was at stake, but I got on that. We call it the thread because it's a, you know, it's a particular discussion thread, but I got on it and I texted, this is what I'm feeling. And man, within seconds from back here, you know, back where we are, I got messages of man, Brett, don't, you know, you don't need to do that. You know, call me if you need me remember this, whatever it was. And that was enough to just say, God, you're right. And so that was the value because there are meetings on cruises. You know, they definitely have meetings on cruises, but having that in palm of my hand just was so easy. I didn't really have to think about, uh, man, is there a meeting two hours from now, whatever. It was instant. Um, so it's a great tool. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, as, how your podcast goes. And as people hear about it, if we get people around the, the country or around the world, even that say, man, that would be cool. And we somehow start creating basically an international WhatsApp group. I think it would be amazing. There are some, some are more GA focused than others. There's a couple gambling groups that are out there, like in Facebook, private ones. And I think, I think there's value to both small and big groups. So they kind of have range and hopefully I get an opportunity to speak to some of the administrators on there. And again, invite people in because there is something about having a connection in the community for sure that I think helps. Yeah. And just the tool itself. I mean, there is Facebook messaging and all of that, but for my own self, I, I'm not on Facebook for other reasons. I just don't want to be. So that limits people that don't want to be on social media. So it's just, again, it's just another tool that I think is helpful. So it's more of just clearly just texting. It's much easier to be part of. So, and even people be a part of both. You don't have to limit. That was a really great point, actually. I hadn't thought about that because I have to be on Facebook. I don't think I could live without it. <laughs> I've, I've always been, I'm off the grid. Well, I think we covered a lot of my questions. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? You know, I don't, I don't think so in the sense that I'm glad I got this opportunity. You asked me before we started, hey, are, are you okay with this? And since I've been in recovery, I had an opportunity. I was on a glimpse of a, a news report once locally, and I had been in touch with a local news station to try to do a deeper story. And they were very interested, but it just it didn't pan out. But people always said, well, aren't you afraid? 
I said, well, here's the thing about feeling good about yourself in recovery. If I truly believe that it's not a character flaw, if I truly believe that it's not something that, you know, I made some bad decisions about, I've got nothing to be embarrassed about. And so I tell people all the time, I don't go around with a t-shirt that says, Hey, I'm a gambling addict. Ask me, you know, <laughs> but if you ask me, I will tell you, you know what I mean? It's a very liberating feeling, but it's, it's really about why would I care? You know, it's, I'm not embarrassed about it. It's a disease the, everybody doesn't need to know, but if it comes up in conversation, okay. Well, in the future, we plan on having um, an episode on that topic about coming out, for lack of a better word. I have some pretty strong feelings about it that I've made clear to people yeah, absolutely. In, in general. But, and it doesn't, again, mean that my way is the right way, but I really would like to throw it out there. And you just did a really good job of explaining why you're okay talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. Who knows? You might get an encore invitation. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. So that'd be great. All right. Before we go, I will end the, the show with a positive message, a positive quote afterwards. But can you tell the audience just one thing that you are grateful for? Oh, boy. I am honestly grateful for the gift of a new day. I honestly am every day. And along that side, I know it's wanted a quick answer, but just two days ago, Bobby, just two days ago, somebody that I'm close with told me about a fire that happened close to them, a house fire. And a fireman went in to, to help a fireman in training and save that fireman and two people in the house. But the fireman that went in died and he had a wife, uh, leaves a wife and three young children. And literally the day, of the, the day after the fire, the day after his death, they had tickets. They were scheduled to go to Disney World, right? So we hear stories about stuff like that all. And this, was a, this, is, a, this is an especially hurtful one but, and sad and tragic. But it just goes to the, the point that when, when I say something like, I am just grateful for the gift of a day, it's not a cliche. It's not, you know, well, it sounds pretty. I appreciate not only life that can throw those things at you, but I can appreciate the fact that if I don't stay in recovery, I may take my own life, which is even more tragic. So I am definitely feel blessed and grateful for the gift of every day. I like that. You said I wanted a short answer. <laughs> I, I knew better. All along, I knew better. I know you did. All right. Well, thank you very much. I truly enjoy listening to Brett. He always has a lot of wisdom for me. In the spirit of what he said he's most grateful for being a new day, I found a quote, another unknown author. Seems like all the good ones, we don't know who said them. But today's positive quote is, every day is a second chance. Simple as that. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy all your second chances. Until next time. <laughs>